I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Mark Lebovich, the founder and longtime head of Bernstein Litowitz's corporate governance litigation practice. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, David. So we're going to talk today about your path into the law, how you came to work on the shareholder side of corporate litigation, your career in that arena, your recent decision to step back from litigation, and what you may do next. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to practice law. I would say I came to practice law almost by accident. I went to law school, but at the time, it was the beginning of the internet bubble, you know, 1996 era. And my intention was to go to law school just long enough to be a corporate lawyer, pay off my loans, and then go start some internet company. That was the dream. And, and honestly, that, that changed. You know, I didn't have a lot of interest in having, in being a litigator, much less having a long term career in the law until I happened to sign up for a corporate law class. And it happened to be taught by someone named Bill Allen, who I later learned had just resigned from being the chancellor of the Delaware Court of Chancery and is and, and remains a luminary in this space. I went to the class and there were a small group of us who, you know, something clicked, right? Something just clicks in your head and, and you're not planning it. And listening to Chancellor Allen, Professor Allen talk about the agency problems that really is the essence of a corporation where you have the concept of having a board of directors managing people's money collectively, owing fiduciary duties and a duty of good faith to the investors, and having all of this power that's checked fundamentally by fiduciary duties. You know, some people, their eyes glaze over. For me, it was absolutely enlightening. It was, it was just the greatest thing to be thinking about and understanding this concept of good faith. I mean, as you said, Bill Allen was an enormously important figure in Delaware law, wrote many decisions that are still read today and resonate today. And he was coming to NYU just after that 12 years on the bench. Could you sense that in his teaching? And was there a way in which he conveyed that this was a really living subject that was maybe different from your other law school classes? It's it's a funny question because he did convey it without trying to. It was his first year teaching. And you know, you see this man who kind of, you know, he looks pretty slight. He, he still had hip problems then. I think he eventually got hip surgery, but he was not trying to impress anyone. He was just teaching this subject. But as he's teaching these iconic cases, he is always going beyond the words and the opinion. And he's always talking about some dynamic that was behind the scenes. And so the way I learned this concept of Delaware law and fiduciary duties is to understand it in a broader political context, business context, you know, something else going on that explains some random reference you see in the opinion. And what he did is create this cogent, coherent whole from case to case, concept to concept. So if you paid attention to him, you learned that there was these overriding themes of good faith and of the law through common law trying to solve agency problems that really adhered through the cases that made sense. And when he taught cases he didn't like, he was very clear in explaining why this case doesn't make sense because it doesn't fit this core paradigm of judges staying away when there's no reason to question someone's good faith, but then taking a close look and kicking the tires if there's a 
inherent reason to question people's good faith, and then assessing, well, okay, the fact that you're kicking the tires doesn't mean people did the wrong thing. How do we now figure out whether people are acting appropriately or inappropriately? Again, to me, I mean, it was it was the antithesis of, sorry to the tax lawyers out there, but tax law, real estate, you know, this was not a check the box exercise. This was understanding the core problem and genius of the corporate form and understanding that it only works if you have this fiduciary duty overlay. And so it was, it was, it was powerful. And again, without him ever trying to impress anyone, it was just the way he viewed the world was something that resonated with me and set me off on a path. And he kind of steered you maybe even literally to your clerkship in in Wilmington after you graduated from NYU. He did. Like I said, I was looking to be at most a corporate lawyer and at most for two, three years, right? I didn't come from a lot. I had to pay off my law school loans and then have a degree that I could parlay into business. I used to go to his office hours again, because you know the 90 minutes or 120 minutes of his class twice a week wasn't enough for me. And so I was sitting in his office hours and he just randomly asked, if I've looked at clerkships, that's when everyone was applying. I said, absolutely not. I'm going to be a corporate lawyer. I'm going to get out of law. And he said that he thought that maybe I'd hit it off with his successor, that the court, which was Steve Lamb, who was a vice chancellor, had left SCAD and opened his own firm for a short time and then became a judge. And he suggested I go meet him. I loved Professor Allen. I said, yes, yeah, sure. I'll give it a shot. I'll always remember he literally drew me a map because it was before you had Waze and he drew it. And in, in one of the only signs of his own self-pride, he signed it for me after drawing me the map from the highway to the courthouse. And then I met Steve Lamb. And again, you know, you you can only control so much in life. Some of it is just being having your eyes open and your ears open to the opportunities that come. And so again, I had no agenda when I took Bill Allen's class. Kind of was lucky enough to love that class and trust him to say, okay, I'll go meet Steve Lamb. I went with no expectation of that turning into something serious, but I did hit it off with Steve Lamb and he hired me. And I remember, I mean, you talk about a lightning bolt moment. I'm in court. The second day I was a clerk was the first day we had a hearing. I saw the lawyers get up and argue at the podium. And all I could think about is how do I get from being on the clerk's desk, looking at these guys you know, these men and women arguing, how do I get to that podium and and be that person with all the pressure that comes with it and all the excitement? And that's when I said, I'm going to be a trial lawyer. And why do you think that resonated with you the way it did? So Delaware is obviously different from your typical federal court or state court where the fact finder is a jury. It has a tradition of long oral arguments, detailed, delving into not just the facts of the case and the law of the case, but in almost inevitably, again, this policy overlay. Sometimes you have a technical case, but what makes this practice so interesting is thinking about the situation before the court and thinking about the precedent that's set if the court rules for the shareholders, the corporation, even business-to-business disputes. There's always this policy overlay. And I just saw these lawyers, maybe it's because, look, I went to a Jewish day school. I love learning Talmud. It's the ancient Jewish law. And the way they teach it is I call it 4D chess, right? It's not linear thinking. It's not linear kind of analysis. It was making connections that I think you know, probably are not obvious, but they're real connections. And I just loved watching these lawyers go to the podium and 
be able to seamlessly go from, Your Honor, here's the fact, here's what this case prior precedent says. And let me draw the analogy for you for what this means for the future. Because that's really, you know, judges have to call balls and strikes, but they are thinking about what their own precedent will mean. It's not like a jury that's just trying to get through the day. And so I found it fascinating. And again, having been fortunate enough to learn the law from this deep core concept of agency problems and fiduciary duty, I guess I just watched these lawyers make it all fit into that context. And it was just amazing to me. And I wanted to be at the podium, the lightning rod for good and bad. And then talk about your early career first at Skadden and then moving over to the shareholder plaintiff side. Yeah. So Steve Lamb, I think I mentioned he had been a longtime partner at Skadden. He was great to learn from because while he was, he started at the SEC and then when he was at Skadden, he worked on the iconic cases of the 80s, right? The hostile takeover era. And he worked on so many of them. And so he, like Bill Allen, had these unique perspectives on what really was happening in these cases. And he did it at Skadden, often on the hostile bitter side. And I think the first sign that I probably was meant to be a shareholder advocate is that when I was leaving my clerkship and was looking at which law firm I wanted to go to to litigate and do takeovers, I had a bias towards being the hostile bidder. Because ultimately, the hostile bidder is always arguing for more protections for shareholders. How do we minimize the power of the board? And I went to Skadden with one of my co-clerks, someone who clerked for Bill Chandler, who was the chancellor at the time. And it was an amazing experience. You know, you hear about these big law firms, Skadden included, but a lot of them where you go and you could get lost and be a number when you're a young lawyer and just be kind of whacking the file and, and looking at documents. Well, having come from the clerkship, having had the benefit of being steered there by Steve Lamb, I was just you know, very often one associate or one of two or three associates on cases, a particular focus on the takeover work and the chancery work. And it was a tremendous opportunity to work with more people like Steve Lamb, who did all those cases in the 80s. John Lerner and Sam Cadet and, and Jake Hasner and George Zimmerman. It was an incredible opportunity to see them in action. And I really avoided those big, what we call the widowmaker cases. I was doing really interesting stuff and got trial work, which is rare at big firms. But early on, I was on trial teams in Chancery Court and in other courts as well. I had a great time for you know, four years and change. And <laughs> again, consistent with the theme of stumbling through life, or at least having your eyes open to opportunity when it presents itself. In 2004, I got to a point where the takeover market had dried up after the internet bubble burst, and I was defending securities cases. No offense, but that wasn't my cup of tea. It just wasn't very gratifying. And I started to explore what are my other options and had actually a headhunter to prepare me for an interview to go in-house at one of the big Wall Street banks. And again, just the, a blessing. <laughs> he listened to me and he said to me, he goes, you know, Mark, I could probably take this fee pretty quickly because I bet you I could prepare you so you can get this job. But my gut is you'll go crazy if you're an in-house lawyer. You want to be at the podium. And those are his words and, and it resonate even now. And the light bulb went off and I thought about it and I realized I've had this bias towards, you know, being pro shareholder. It's not an ideology. It's just a, you know, I'd rather represent shareholders. And I said, call Bernstein Litowitz and see if they're hiring. That was a firm that from my experience at SCAD and I understood 
that not every plaintiff's firm was a place where I'd want to work. And I saw Burns Leonard's and I said, go see if they're hiring. So that worked out and found myself initially in 2004 spending about, I guess it was almost two years prosecuting securities cases, great cases, more fun than defending them. And then in 2006, in the fall, I went to the senior partners there. And when I was interviewing, I said, look, what I know is Delaware, and I'd love to get back into that. Um, And there's an opportunity to do real litigation on the plaintiff side in Delaware. And, And almost two years after I started, I asked for that opportunity. I was a senior associate and the firm gave me the opportunity to start a practice. And I did by the end of 2006. So talk about the experience of of starting a practice. You mentioned when you went to law school that you had seen yourself maybe going into a startup. Talk also about kind of where this entrepreneurial streak came from, because it seems like it's something that you'd always had or been aware of came from because it seems like it's something that you'd always had or been aware of. So it's a great question. I'll object that the end part was compound and there's two answers, right? So there's did I always have it and was I always aware of it? I think I did always have it. I was not aware of it until I had the benefit of hindsight. I think the reason I had it, not to get too much into kind of the deep family history, but my family are Russian immigrants and they came in the early 70s. Both of my parents were engineers in Russia, but their degrees weren't honored in the States. I remember the formative kind of experience of being just a couple of years old, maybe first grade or something. And my dad, who had been working at one of the big banks, he got laid off in the late 70s. And then he kind of defaulted into opening up a jewelry business, a jewelry manufacturer. And he was forced into being an entrepreneur. And what I saw over the years was, you know, he built this business to put two kids through Jewish day school, through college. And he was kind of the involuntary entrepreneur. And and maybe I saw him fret over what could go wrong with a plan. And by working with him, you know, even as a kid traveling with him to go to jewelry stores, I saw that and I respect it. I understood why he was very cautious and conservative. But I think that the effect it had on me is it probably made me more willing to take risk. And I had more of a vision, you know, where I wasn't as afraid of things going wrong because I wasn't looking at the abyss if things went wrong. I think that's the the mindset he had to have. And so, yeah, I mean, I was always pretty aggressive and, and willing to draw outside the lines, I'd say. And, and yeah, I mean, being a senior associate and going to the senior partners of a firm proposing, let's create a business line. It was either foolhardy or audacity or visionary. And I think depending on who you ask, it could be any of those three, but they gave me some rope. And fortunately, I did something good with it. And what was started as a couple of cases grew into a practice area, grew into a, a department. And by the time I retired a short time ago, it's the equivalent of a standalone law firm. I mean, it's, it's an amazing practice. Talk about the milestones in that development and how you approached it early on. Were you nervous or you knew this was going to succeed? And when did you really feel comfortable that this was going to grow into a significant practice? I'll tell you when I get there. No, (laughs) it's a good question. I was always so in the now. I was trying to survive. And I think this is probably common for 
many lawyers, you know, trying to find their way and definitely those who are taking a chance and putting a lot of pressure on themselves. I had this long-term vision of growing a practice, but I was just trying to survive the day. And when you're a younger lawyer, you know, I mean, I practiced for 25 years, I would say maybe for 15 years or more, the first 15 years, the stress is, it's a fear of failure. And it can be a good motivator, actually. You know, and maybe it's more than 15 years, but I did not take for granted that there would be success, even when by any objective measure, there was, right? Now, there's people would say, Mark, look at what you're doing. And all I could think about was not the win I had, but the loss, right? It's how frustrating and how upset I was over the loss. And just you carry this weight. And then over time, you know, you just learn. And I think I got to a point where instead of being afraid that I can't do the work, I'm not good enough or smart enough or creative enough to do the work that I've taken on my shoulders. Over time, you, know, you just get a perspective and say, actually, whatever I felt along the way, I've actually had success and I've made a lot of money for my firm and recovered a tremendous amount of money for investors and done a lot of things that I think have a positive influence on the development of the law. Eventually, you look at it and you say, no, I'm pretty good at this. And then the stress becomes different. It becomes the stress of not surviving, but of excelling. And I would say to young lawyers, to any lawyers, that if you can make that transition, that's really where you get opportunity. Because I think I was doing a good job as a young lawyer and as a young partner. And then somewhere on the line, when I went from being afraid of failure to striving for excellence with kind of clear eyes, I got it. And I would say, chronologically, the last few years before we opened the Delaware office were tough years to be a shareholder's lawyer in Delaware, 2016, 17, and even 18. But I thought within the limits of being a New York-based law firm, right, where you're still partnering up with other firms, you don't have a Delaware office, you're not a Delaware entity. I think we were probably doing work that was as good as anyone can do, again, from the New York platform. I will accept the Wachtell Lipton. I mean, I just think Wachtell, historically, they're a different animal. They're a New York firm, but the, their influence and effectiveness in the Delaware rubric is unique. But I would put what we were doing from a New York basis up against any other New York-based firm. We were present in the Delaware world. So we were excelling, I think, those last few years under very tough circumstances because the law was tough for shareholders at the time. And then in 2019, early in the year, went to my partners. And after years of them saying, would you ever open a Delaware office? Should we open a Delaware office? And just asking the questions and didn't think it was the right time. Early 2019, I felt was the right time. And fortunately got support at not only to do it, but to do it right. And it became very clear to me in my own mind and through getting advice from people in Delaware, who I respected deeply that the way to do it right is find a local Delaware partner who's really respected and a real significant entity in Delaware. You're not just putting up a shingle. And I was never going to just do that. I was going to spend time in Delaware because I thought I had some reputational value in Delaware, but we wanted to get someone in. Lo and behold, we partnered up with my even then very good friend and tremendous lawyer, Greg Barallo. And we opened up the Delaware office in July 2019 and built a practice that I was extremely proud of and I thought was doing excellent work into something great with a great team. And 
when I was able to be running the show, at least we had a lot of success for investors and for the firm alike. So I'm very proud of that. Talk about Greg's move in covering law firms you know, for 25 years. That, that's been one of the lateral moves that surprised me most because he was the head of Richards, Layton and Finger. He goes over to the plaintiff side. So talk about your interaction with him in making that move and also more broadly about the relationships you built with lawyers on the corporate defense side, one, just from working across from them for so many years, but also in, in having to work with them to settle cases. And so how that dynamic worked. When you're a young lawyer, whether it's at a big law firm on the defense side, a SCAD and a Sullivan and Cromwell, a, you know, or you're at a Bernstein Litowitz type, uh, you know, a, a shareholder side firm. When you're young and find yourself, because you put the pressure on yourself and get the opportunities, dealing with more senior lawyers, you know, it's tough. You find like, it feels like it's a fight every day. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the first time I interacted with any co-counsel on the plaintiff side or adversary on the defense side, you know, your first interaction, at least for me, I mean, it was hostile. It was volatile. It was fighting. And part of that was I was just so young and taking on all of this that I knew what should happen. And, and you know, you just have to be sharp, aggressive. You get pushed around otherwise. There was a purpose in my aggressiveness. I wasn't doing it randomly. I knew what mattered, but I had to earn respect. And sometimes to earn respect, you, you got to be pretty tough in this field. At the same time, you have to be professional. Over time, what I learned is there are people in all aspects of the law, as I'm sure as all aspects of, of life, who are transactional versus those who are relationship driven. I think that over time, I learned that relationships do matter, whether it's with co-counsel, whether it's with adversaries, whether it's with mediators, you know, judges, your, your repeat players, they get to know you and get to know, you know, who you are. And that'll survive the one case where you either are particularly nice or particularly, you know, hostile. Um, and, and so again, that's the evolution, but I learned to develop relationships with adversaries and friends alike. It became a priority of mine, you know, to not take a short term view of the situation who I'm dealing with. And at the same time to recognize there are certain people who don't take a long term view. And if they're going to be transactional and, and, you know, try to squeeze the last bit of juice out of the lemon when they can, even at the expense of embarrassing you or hurting you. Okay. You know that. And, you know, you can respond in kind, but I like to think that defense lawyers understood that as aggressive as I was for my clients, that I would not embarrass them gratuitously. I would not hurt them with their clients gratuitously. And I was going to be a straight shooter. I mean, I was honest. I wasn't going to deceive them. I would say to them, I'm going to beat you and your client and I'm going to do it from the front, right? I'm not going to be tricky about it. And so I developed, a, I'd like to think a lot of good relationships that hopefully will translate to the future. Greg was an example of that. I got to know Greg as an adversary numerous times. And I guess, I don't know, maybe if I stayed at Skadden, I, I would have not had the success that he had. I mean, he ran Richards Layton, but just had that spark where he had a mildly anti-establishment tenor for a guy who is literally the establishment in Delaware, right? And, and he just had this kind of rebelliousness or independent spirit that made us kindred spirits, but he was doing it in a different context because he was a highly respectable defense lawyer 
leading Delaware's biggest law firm, while I had a little bit more freedom to be entertaining because I was the Darth Vader helmet wearing plaintiff's lawyer. And it's liberating in a way when you're not as concerned about what people think of you. But when I went to get advice, I didn't like poach him. I mean, I went to talk to him. He was one of those people I mentioned that I wanted advice. I want to do this. I want to open a Delaware office. I want to do it the right way. And my soliciting advice from my friend whose opinion I really valued evolved into, wow, I mean, this is, this is really the right decision. And, and fortunately, the management at Bernstein Litowitz trusted me on that. And we made the you know, commitment to bring Greg on and the rest, as they say, is history. You retired from Bernstein Litowitz in September. Talk about both the professional and personal aspects of that decision and and really life change. My wife, she was incredibly supportive all through my career. Periodically, she would say to me that she understands how much my success as a lawyer was part of my, just my sense of self, right? And in so many other ways, you know, I was blessed and have, have done my best to be a good dad and a good husband and a good friend. But really, everything in life became secondary to this obsession I had with the law. And in the end, my retirement came about pretty quickly. It's not something I was planning for a long time. It was something that I had to kind of process over a short period of time. And my wife said that she would support whatever I decided to do, including some pretty challenging paths that we considered. And then when I decided, okay, this is going to be a retirement, she said to me something that really resonates. She said, you know, I know what this meant to you, and I would never give you any ultimatum or pressure. And she said, but I have to tell you, Mark, knowing how much you glorified all the good parts of your legal practice, and knowing that you therefore minimize the negatives, the stress, you know, any of the detractions from the joy of practicing law as a senior partner at my old law firm. She said, I would never push you, but I actually always had a fear that you would work till the day you died because you would always rationalize the negative parts away because you love the positive so much. And that kind of shook me because I realized she might have been right. Very possibly would have been the person who would, you know, glorify 85 years old and I'm still working 70 hours a week. So this was quite a uh, surprise that it came about. And then, you know, it was a, a brief period where I was essentially working out an amicable departure with my partners. But professionally, I think this is an interesting kind of opportunity because my wife was right. I was rationalizing away some of the stresses and negatives. And I think I realized, you know, particularly looking at that Delaware office, it's a beautiful place. And I don't just mean physically. I mean, what I and Greg created there in terms of the karma, just the feeling people have for each other, the way they support each other, the level of the, the quality of the work that we were doing. It really goes beyond writing a brief well, right? There's a culture that we established that's just tremendous. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the cases that we filed when I was filing them and the recoveries we got for investors when I was doing that. And now I'm able to reassess that balancing act because now I am able to take the time to look for ways to explore the parts of practice, my practice that I did love. 
And that's being creative with Delaware law, trying to have a positive influence on it, being an advocate for shareholders, which I think is my natural bias, training, teaching young lawyers. I mean, I did it. Mentoring was a big part of what I did. And and now I can explore doing that as a teacher, hopefully. And I could find ways to do that where I get all the positives of my practice or get a lot of the positives, you know, and maybe minimize some of the stresses and less positive aspects of practicing. And I'll take the time to figure out the right path there. Just a couple more questions. I guess first, as you talk to your your friends, people you went to law school with or, or lawyers you've developed friendships with in your years of, of practice, how has your decision resonated with them? Because it, you know anyone around your age has to, to recognize that tension between professional success and the, the real personal cost it can take. Yeah, I, I've had... I've had a fair degree of what I call philosophical conversations with friends and, and even some acquaintances, even some just colleagues, you know, defense, kind of senior defense lawyers that, that have, I guess, used my retirement, maybe do some introspection on, on their part. Look, in our world, priority one, you know, anyone who, sa- anyone who says they don't care about money is lying, right? We're, we're in America, we're capitalists, of course you do. Priority one, if you've got, if you have a family and you, know, you have obligations, is you have to provide. And that alone for many people can be a reason to do what I did with the balancing of the positives and the negatives and, and rationalize because you just have to keep going. What I found was as I shed that weight of the fear of failure and, and, you know, I really enjoyed practicing more because I was like, okay, I want to, I want myself and the team to just be excellent. And that was really this focus. And it was very gratifying to try for that without that fear of failure and then and actually succeed a lot of times in in getting a group of people to achieve excellence together. And and I think that you get to a point where, you know, it's look, it's really scary. I mean, I've thank God enjoyed a lot of success, but to go to have from a, from income to no income when you're under 50 is is frankly scary. It just you know, you just have to just think of things differently. On the other hand, it really is an opportunity to say, okay, what is important? And now instead of do the work hard, play hard thing that I always did by play, that, that is whether it's I was in my 20s or 30s, you know, or now late 40s, where playing is typically, you know, playing with the kids and 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 with you know friends and family. It doesn't have to be secondary. Like everything took a backseat to my commitment to my practice. And now it's kind of nice to know that I'm spending time reading the cases and staying up on it. And again, planning to do some teaching and find other ways to stay involved in the world of corporate governance and the world of the way Delaware law affects the merger market. That is absolutely still interesting and something I'm still exploring. But now that is equal to or even secondary to some of the other priorities of, of just trying to you know really enjoy enjoy life because you don't know how long you have. And then finally, and you've you've touched on this a little before, what do you see doing in the next six to twelve months and beyond? So I mentioned teaching and you know I've said to people for years, I mean even as a practicing lawyer, I would tell every law professor I knew, hey, you need a guest lecture, I'm here for you. 
And one of the first things I did, particularly, I guess, if you get to the point of retiring quickly, right? It was scary. You can't imagine how scary it is to go from going 120 miles an hour for 25 years and enjoying it actually to sending out an email that says, I've retired and waking up the next morning. It was the day of the Jets home opener. And so you wake up the next morning, you say, well, Aaron Rodgers just tore his ACL. And so the Jets season seems like it's over. And oh my God, my career is over. What am I going to do? Am I going to be bored? Is my brain going to rot away? And so one of the first things I did, I didn't give myself a chance to relax. I was contacting a lot of those professors. I am this full blessed to be invited to do guest lecturing at a bunch of different great schools. I am currently planning to, got very fortunate uh, that Vice Chancellor Will, she teaches a class at Penn in the spring. It's an advanced topics in corporate law. And right when I reached out to her to just talk about my retirement and, and how much I appreciated, you know, essentially the relationship we had even before she was a judge and, and just her work as a vice chancellor. And so I'm going to be co-teaching with her in the spring, a, a seminar at Penn Law. So that's a great honor and really just such a privilege. And so I'm really excited for that. And longer term, I've always had the interest in teaching. One of the gratifying parts of my practice was mentoring young lawyers. Hopefully I can translate that into teaching and mentoring future lawyers. But there's other things that I'll explore. Your audience probably consists of a lot of merger arbs, you know, hedge fund traders. Those were the relationships I built. And I built it by giving people my best judgment on a situation that was a kind of Delaware law uh, or litigation situation. And they would trade on it. I never asked what they were trading. It was all just free advice, my best judgment. But maybe that at some point I try to figure out if I can take my knowledge of the law and translate into actually valuing those legal assessments and trading on it in some capacity or advising on how people can trade on it. You know, you mentioned settling a lot of cases, obviously in our business cases settle. I think that, you know, while I developed my litigation skill set early on, starting with my Skadden years, the most gratifying thing I did in the last 10 years or so was really learning how to negotiate, how to negotiate settlements of cases, how to mediate. It was, you understand, you start to learn that even when a case seems to be just a zero sum game about money, it's not. There's other dynamics at play. There's the client's personal issues, whether it's ego or their business priorities, the lawyer dynamics. You know, there's all sorts of things that, that are what I call the mini compromises that have to be addressed before you can get to the big compromise. And so some people have suggested, and, and it's, it's an interesting kind of line, you know, mediation. Right. I think that good mediators understand that there's a whole lot of small bridges to gap before you get to the big bridge. And so I've, I've thought about it maybe at some point getting involved. That goes back to the relationship issue is if you're known as a plaintiff's lawyer, you might get a lot of resistance from defense lawyers and their clients. But I'd like to think that the defense lawyers I dealt with understand that whatever bark this dog had, ultimately, I was in the business of assessing cases, valuing cases, and, and doing it pretty objectively. Sell that I was being ideological because that helped me in a negotiation. But I think hopefully I had a reputation for being a good assessor of value and a straight shooter. And so, you know, thought about that and, and I'll see. I do have the 
blessed luxury being able to take the time to figure out how to get that balance I touched on is how to get the most out of my love for Delaware law, the world of corporations with the best possible environment for doing so. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've gone back many years and talked about a lot of different situations. So I appreciated you reaching out. And like I said, I may not be the plaintiff's lawyer you're checking in with and quoting, but I hope our paths continue to cross in the future. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.